The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. So yesterday was the first day of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And we we had some hints that it was going to be an absolutely embarrassing, pathetic attempt at an impeachment defense. And one of the reasons we thought that was that multiple times in legal briefs submitted by Donald Trump's various beleaguered legal teams, they misspelled United States. They misspelled it as United States. And that probably was not the auspicious start that they were going for. And it ended up being an absolutely farcical presentation. Yesterday was a day it it was day one, but at the same time, it wasn't in the sense that the topic of four hours of debate yesterday, uh, four hours of presentations, rather, there was not debate among senators. The topic, the reason for yesterday's four hours of presentations was merely to convince the Senate one way or the other about whether the Senate has the authority and the jurisdiction to hold an impeachment trial of a president that is no longer president, a former president, a past president. And why you would have the Senate decide about constitutionality, I don't know. And uh, many legal scholars were not clear as to why the Senate was being put in the position of having to decide whether it was constitutional. But that's what yesterday was about. The Senate decided not by a huge margin, 56 to 44, that, yes, the Senate can hold an impeachment trial of a president who is no longer the sitting president. Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin opened the proceedings as one of the impeachment managers. Uh, He spoke really well, included in his presentation an absolutely devastating video of what happened on January 6th, cutting back and forth from what Donald Trump was saying and what was happening at the Capitol. And then it was the turn. uh, It was Trump's lawyer's turn. And a guy named Bruce Castor spoke. We covered it live and he droned on for about 50 minutes about nothing germane to the impeachment of Donald Trump. Now, you might say, well, that must be an exaggeration, David. It must have been somewhat related to the impeachment. I couldn't figure out how. Uh, Our live audience of about 40,000 people couldn't figure out how it was related. uh, Bruce Castor going on about British law before the Revolutionary War, his personal relationships with some of the senators in the in the chamber. Um, It's absurd. It's unintelligible. Let's look at some clips. Here is Bruce Castor starting with his own childhood (laughs) and uh, the political preferences of his parents. When I was growing up in uh, suburban Philadelphia, My parents were big fans of Senator Everett Dirksen from Illinois. And uh, Senator Dirksen recorded a series of lectures that my parents had on a record. And we still know what records are, right? On the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. So that type of stuff went on about 10 minutes. Then Castor started talking about how cool and great senators are as individuals and how senators tend to like the states that they are from their families. They love the states that they represent. There isn't a member in this room who has not used the term. I represent the great state of 
fill in the blank. Why? Because they're all great? Yeah. But you think yours is greater than others because these are your people. These are the people that sent you here to do their work. It genuinely seemed like maybe Bruce Castor prepared for some other trial about something different than the impeachment of Donald Trump, because none of what he said made any sense. It became like an open mic night, which then continued with more discussion of what it means to be in the United States Senate as far as Bruce Castor was concerned. So senators are patriots. Senators are family men and women. They're fierce advocates for the great state in which they represent. And somewhere far down that list of attributes, way below patriot and way below love of family and country and way below fierce advocates for their states, far down, at least that's what I thought anyway, and I still think that, somewhere far down that list, senators have some obligation to be partisans. If you're wondering what on earth he's talking about? Did you miss something? We were all wondering that yesterday. We it made no sense whatsoever. I had no idea what this guy was talking about. And indeed, Donald Trump was not happy. We'll talk more about this later in the show. But here's a report from CNN about just how displeased and rightly so how displeased Trump was with this. Not think that was a strong opening argument. And then to have the first attorney admit that he believed the House impeachment managers did a good job also was confusing to a lot of people on the president's team. But yes, Trump was not happy with that performance. He was borderline screaming over what was going on as he was talking to people about this. It wasn't just Donald Trump who was not pleased with what Bruce Castor did. Uh, Fox News host Sean Hannity himself couldn't even resist mentioning multiple times that it was a meandering presentation that Hannity didn't really understand. Uh, Here he is saying it to Republican Senator Ted Cruz. I thought it was a little bit of a weak start. I'm not being critical, just a little lackluster, meandering to me, needed a little more focus. Needs focus, meandering, quite an quite an understatement. If you saw the 50 minutes of atrocities from Bruce Castor there. And then this is even better when interviewing Donald Trump's other lawyer, David Schoen. uh, Again, Hannity says he he didn't really understand that first part. Your arguments. I loved your passion. I thought it started a little meandering. It was sort of like a lot of free associating in the beginning, and I'm not I'm, I'm not attacking your partner. I don't I don't know him at all. So even Sean Hannity has to concede in his own words, in his own understated way. This was absolutely off the wall bonkers. And it was also even some Republican senators that noticed this. Here is Republican Senator uh, Bill Cassidy saying I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, I if if I just have to vote based on what I see there, uh, they didn't make the case uh, Trump's lawyers for anything. You listen to it, it speaks for itself. It was disorganized, random, had nothing. They talked about many things, but they didn't talk about the issue at hand. And so if uh, if you if I'm an impartial juror and I'm trying to make a decision based upon uh, the facts as presented on this issue then the House managers did a much better job. It was really like a verbal ink blot 
free association, a kind of um, uh, senatorial Rorschach test of sorts. What do you here's 50 minutes of words, mostly words. What do you make? What can you make out of them? What do you see in there? And even many Republican senators saying, I can't see anything in there. That doesn't make any sense. As uh, as, as I was watching it our, uh, with our audience on the live stream yesterday, I was saying, does Trump fire this guy by today? As of yet, he has not been fired. But later on in the show, we are going to have a report about what what exactly was going on with Donald Trump, including apparently screaming as uh, Bruce Castor was making his presentation. We'll see if day two goes any better for Trump's legal team. That's coming up a little bit later today. Uh, OK, we are continuing to learn about who the individuals involved in the January 6th Trump riot are and who they were and what areas of society and industry they came from. Now, I already told you it was either last week or maybe the week before that members of the military, current and former, uh, were dramatically overrepresented among the Trump rioters on January 6th. Something like uh, 14 percent of those arrested uh, were either former or current members of the military. That's very concerning. And we now have another individual story. 14 percent is, is a, a, a general number. We now have an individual story that's even more horrifying. Uh, according to Time, a man who authorities say is a leader of the far right Oath Keepers militia group and helped to organize other extremists in their participation in the January 6th Trump riots. Number one, held a top secret security clearance for decades. And number two, previously worked for the FBI, according to his own attorney. Now, you might be wondering, why is this guy's own attorney saying these things? It it raises more concerns. It should make us horrified that that was the position this guy held. Well, his attorney is raising these issues to justify that uh, he should be out on bail and that he's super trustworthy and you don't have to worry about him. The man's name is Thomas Caldwell. Authorities believe that he has a leadership role in this extremist group called the Oath Keepers. He was FBI section chief between 2009 and 2010. This is not any FBI person would be a, a real red flag in terms of their participation. But this was not a nobody to the extent that there are nobodies in the FBI. This was a section chief from 2009 to 2010. Previously, he was in the Navy. Again, we talked about the overrepresentation of members of the military among the Trump rioters. And his lawyer, Thomas Plofshin, wrote in a motion saying, you, listen, look at this guy's creds. You can safely release him as he awaits trial because he was in the Navy and he was FBI section chief. And um, the uh, uh, reason why you can trust him is he had this top secret security clearance and he worked for the FBI and he had a consulting firm that did work for the U.S. government. This guy's trustworthy. And of course, as many of us learn more and more about the individual's involved in the January 6th riot, we are horrified. We are horrified about, wow, I mean, listen, people can change in 11 years, right? This guy was FBI section chief from 2009 to 2010. In 2021, he finds himself uh, participating in the Trump riot. Um, many of us would logically be led to ask, did the FBI 
miss signs about this guy back in 2009. And the counter argument will be, well, no, the FBI could have done its job at vetting in 2009. There really might have been nothing there then. And something happened since then that ended up radicalizing this guy to the point where he's part of the Oath Keepers, this right wing militia group, and he's participating in the January 6th riots. But we all should be asking um, who else is in there now? Who who's in the military now? Who's in the FBI now that has these same ideas, the same ideology, the same uh, allegiances, for lack of a better term, as this guy? And we just don't know about that yet. That is a very, very uh, uh, concerning element of this. And th- the truth is, we should be horrified that uh, these are the individuals that not just participated, but allegedly were organizers of the Trump riot. Th- this is essentially a terrorist. This is someone who organized others to attempt a violent insurrection because they didn't like the results of a democratically held election. There, there's really no other way to define what these folks are. And um, the the other kind of a few people wrote to me and they said, you know, it's interesting that this guy Caldwell is now uh, he's he's disabled legally. He uh, is on disability and he's received he's on the government dole, so to speak, and uh, pointing out People were pointing out two things. One is less interesting to me. Some folks wrote to me and said, David, this guy clearly is not disabled because he was able to participate in the riots. I think that that's the wrong angle to go at. I think it starts to get into these sometimes prejudicial or discriminatory things about what does a disabled person look like? And I don't like that. I'm not going to go in that direction. Um, The part that is more interesting from a political standpoint is that a lot of anti-government extremists are sometimes completely dependent on the government. And that reminds me of, you know, keep the government out of my Medicare sort of stuff, where do people not understand where their uh, benefits are coming from or do they not care? Are they blinded by ideology? Is it some combination of all of all of the above? That's more interesting to me. Evaluating whether someone is or isn't truly disabled based on whether they're at the riot. I'm not going to get involved in that. Uh, But the numbers continue to be concerning. 14 percent of those arrested former or current military. We now are learning more about individuals who were relatively high ranking folks uh, within agencies up to and including the FBI. This should horrify all of us. We know that the military has been looking at white supremacy within its ranks for some time. Uh, but what is the FBI doing? What is the CIA doing? How many of these folks are in there within the system? And what does that mean going forward when we think about federal responses to events like this, which hopefully will be very infrequent, but but uh, history tells us uh, it is bound to happen again at some point and how, how prepared will we actually be? Let me know your thoughts. You can find me on Twitter at dpacman. We'll be back and uh, much to discuss today. The David Pakman Show at davidpacman.com. One of our sponsors is Four Sigmatic, the company best known for their delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with both lion's mane and chaga mushrooms. Chaga mushrooms have actually been shown to have potential in supporting the immune system in peer reviewed studies. I've been drinking Four Sigmatic coffee a lot lately. It actually doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It just tastes like any delicious coffee. But it's really easy on my stomach, doesn't give me any jittery feeling or a midday crash. And they have over 20,000 five star reviews. And best of all, if you don't love it, 
you'll get 100 percent of your money back because they stand behind their product. You've got nothing to lose by giving it a try. Four Sigmatic is giving my audience up to 40 percent off and free shipping when you go to four Sigmatic dot com slash Pacman. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash P-A-K-M-A-N. The link is also in the podcast notes for this episode. One of our sponsors is Privacy, a free service that protects your credit and debit card. I use Privacy every time I buy something online. I installed the app on my phone and the Privacy desktop browser extension. Now, when I pay for anything, Privacy autofills a virtual credit card number. The money's taken out of my bank account. I don't have to give out my real card number or banking info to anyone. You can create and delete the virtual cards anytime. I especially love it for free trials because I can destroy the virtual card number as soon as I give it to the company and I know I won't be charged in the future. Privacy also has a feature called shared cards, which makes it easy to split payments with friends. Parents can manage a virtual card for their kid with spending limits. Businesses can manage virtual cards for employees to use for company expenses. There are premium plans available, but Privacy's regular service is totally free to use. And right now they'll give you five dollars just for signing up. When you go to privacy.com slash Pacman, you can find the link in the podcast notes. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. Remember that the David Pakman show is primarily sponsored by viewers and listeners like you. Grab yourselves a membership at joinpacman.com. Coupon code better21 always available. We talked last week about a poll that showed that 64% of current Republicans are willing to leave the Republican party if Donald Trump were to start a third party. And uh, this reinforced the sort of soft nature of much of the support of the Republican Party, uh, as well as the cachet that Donald Trump, at least now, as we approach one month since he's been out of office, that for at least now, Donald Trump still has on the Republican Party. Uh, but that is all hypothetical. Those are people who would be willing to leave the Republican Party. What about people that are leaving and not because Trump started in another party, but just because they're leaving? There is a very interesting uh, series of studies, many of them out of California, some out of, out of Florida as well which show that there are already thousands and thousands of voters in some counties that are leaving the Republican Party um, and what they where they are going re remains a question. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Um, but this seems to be a reaction to uh, the defeat of Donald Trump combined with two months of lies about the election supposedly having been stolen from him and of voting experts at the University of Florida say that there are thousands and thousands of Republicans that are no longer traditional Republicans that are no longer registered as Republicans anymore, and that while there are often changes to party registrations all the time, and in particular after elections, that the number of Republicans leaving the party <clears throat> are significantly greater in number than the number of Democrats that are changing their registrations. They looked at San Diego County in California, as well as some other uh, parts of, uh, of the country. And um, it appears as though the January 6th Trump riot was sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back. It's unclear that 
it alone is the explanation for why so many Republicans are abandoning their party, but rather the sort of culmination to months and really years of a complete joke of a Republican Party with Donald Trump at the helm at its head. And it is believed indeed that the abandonment of the Republican Party by these folks is a sort of rejection of Trumpism more than it is of what the Republican Party used to be. These folks who are leaving widely believed to still be in line with whatever values or ideologies brought them in in the first place, whether it was Ronald Reagan 40 years ago or whether it was someone like uh, either of the George uh, Bushes. Um, or more the Newt Gingrich style early 90s politics that attracted people to the Republican Party or folks like John McCain and Mitt Romney, more recent Republican nominees, whatever it was that brought them in, they still they're not leftists. They're not leaving because they're leftists, but they're leaving as a rejection of Trumpism is what it seems to be. Now, there's a really important and obvious question to ask if we want to figure out what is or is there an electoral impact to this, which is, okay, if you leave the Republican Party, are you still voting for Republicans? Unless we have reason to believe otherwise, they probably are. Uh, You can leave the Republican Party and be an independent and still vote just for Republicans. Uh, And I can't imagine that many of these folks are looking to vote for Democrats uh, at the state and local level. Maybe some would stay home, which would still be help to the Democratic Party. Uh, And sadly, I believe most of these folks will be very quick to return. If indeed what they're doing is rejecting Trumpism by leaving, as soon as the media focus gets back to Black Lives Matter is terrible and Joe Biden's allowing immigrants into the country and, oh, the debt and the deficit and all of that tried and true stuff that we predicted Republicans would go back to after Trump and that we're already seeing them go back to after Trump, I believe many will return to the party. And importantly, I don't think many of these folks will opt to vote for Democrats rather than whatever Republicans they can vote for in 2022 and in 2024, assuming Donald Trump is not the nominee at that point in time. So, you know, you know, independents who used to be Republicans that still vote for Republicans, not super interesting. And it's important to know as a general political uh, concept, when we talk about independents, there are some folks who uh, like to frame themselves as, as these enlightened centrists that are not loyal to either party. And sometimes they vote for Republicans or for Democrats or Green Party or whatever. The vast majority of independents vote overwhelmingly for one party or the other. And they are essentially as partisan as most Democrats or Republicans. They just aren't officially affiliated with any party. And let's not overstate the importance of party registration alone. Now, that being said, uh, if a lot of Republicans are abandoning the party, um, if some of them are saying for the time being, I'm not going to be donating, these are things that could make a difference. The question then becomes, will Democrats take advantage of it? And that certainly remains to be seen. Former vice presidential candidate and former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, a big Trumpist, was interviewed by Good Morning Britain, and it is absolutely nuts. And, you know, I jokingly said 10 days ago on Twitter, remember when Sarah Palin was the craziest person in the Republican Party back in 2008 and how now she seems so moderate compared to some of this wacky QAnon stuff. Then I saw this interview from yesterday and now I'm thinking, no, no, Sarah Palin's just as wacky as a lot of these QAnon people. Let's uh, look at some of some clips here. We'll dive right in. First question to Sarah Palin was, does Trump bear responsibility for the January 6th riots. The president told uh, those who are attending the rally to uh, go protest peacefully and um, patriotically 
and legally. So no, we're so these idiots who did storm the Capitol, um, and now they're blaming the president for their own actions. I think that's a symptom of a societal problem where people just cannot take responsibility for their stupid and criminal acts. The hilarity of Sarah Palin saying this is about people being unable to take personal responsibility for their actions. That's what started this entire thing. That's what got us here. If on November 8th, which was the day that the media called the election for Joe Biden, if on November 8th, Donald Trump and Republicans took responsibility and said we lost, we failed on covid and we lost or we didn't do for whatever reason we lost and that's it. That responsibility would have prevented all of this. And of course, after the fact in Trump's inciting of the riot as well, they are completely denying any responsibility whatsoever. But that personal responsibility is not what Sarah Palin is talking about. She says that the problem with personal responsibility is the people who did the rioting aren't taking personal responsibility. Then Sarah Palin makes the case that, listen, the rioters were already there planning chaos. They weren't influenced by Donald Trump at all. And Piers Morgan points out, well, hold on a second. The two months of the lie about election fraud from November 4th, that was really the initial catalyst for these people being so whipped up to begin with. This is why they were even there on January 6th. It's a very good point. Sarah Palin doesn't like it. Also, you have to remember that those who were these rioters and again, they were horrible and they had it was a horrible act. Um, they were there already. So many of them were. They weren't like standing in the back of the rally, um, rooting on patriotically a president's speech. No, they were they knew what they were going to do. They were going to go storm the Capitol and be jerks. Yeah, the reason they were going to, Sarah, Sarah, the the reason, Sarah Palin, they were going to do that is because the president, ever since the uh, result of a fair democratic election, had perpetuated an absolute lie that there had been widespread fraud, which has never been proven at all. It didn't exist. Mm. He whipped his mob into a frenzy. He told them to stop the steal. And as the elected officials in Congress were actually ratifying the election, he ordered them to march down to the Capitol and stop the steal. And yeah, some of them may have just got the wrong memo, but you know what? It sounded to me like the president wanted to stop the steal, as he put it, and stop the democratic election being ratified. That, I'm afraid, is a criminal action, isn't it? Why are you generalizing, though, and making it sound like it was this entire crowd that was so excited? Because I saw thousands of people. Now, this is just rich. Why are you generalizing? She says, well, he's not generalizing. Seventy five million people voted for Trump. Piers isn't talking about 75 million people because most of them stayed home on January 6th. Thousands and thousands of people went to the January 6th Trump rally. Piers also isn't talking about all of them because some of them, when the rally was over, turned around and they went to their cars or got on the subway and went home where they came from. Uh, He is doing the opposite of generalizing. He's talking specifically about the people who went to the Capitol and were trespassing and vandalizing and being violent. Was it 500 people? Was it 1500 people? 2000? We're still trying to figure out the exact number. He's not generalizing at all. And this continues. And Sarah Palin won't even concede that Donald Trump lost. And this is where it you really see the full delusion of Sarah Palin. And I know some people are going to write to me and say, David, she seems unwell. She, she just she seems like she's not well. 
Uh, and unfortunately, this is the impression we get from a lot of these right wing uh, uh, loons. So I don't know that that tells us much one way or the other about her politics. But she was asked Trump. Won- Trump didn't win. Right. Like Trump lost. And she says, well, I don't know. Take a look. No, Sarah, was, I saw thousands yeah. of people. I'm not generalizing. We all saw the you, scenes. You did generalize. I watched you did. thousands you, you of people. You made it sound like it was the entire crowd. No, I watched thousands of people storming into the Capitol. We all watched it with our own eyes. It was one of the most But grotesque. it wasn't the entire crowd, right? Okay, I'm talking about the thousands who did. And there's uh-huh. no question, okay. there's no question they were whipped up to do so because they believed their president who told them the election had been stolen, fraudulently stolen. That was a lie, wasn't it? Uh, the president has been insisting, so many Americans have been insisting that our elections are run um, legally and uh, transparently. And when there were shenanigans, obviously, in um, so many of the uh, polling areas, the president has insisted that we look into where all these votes had come from. But the election wasn't stolen, was it, Sarah Palin? Let's be honest. Let's be clear. The election election was won. There were shenanigans. Sarah, the election was was won. Let me just say something. And there always is. Sarah, the election was won. The election was won fair and square by a thumping win by Joe Biden. Do you accept that? Uh, I want to see that, that our elections and every polling place is run cleanly. Now, I was a governor. So she will not admit that in trying to defend Trump from any blame about people storming the Capitol. She's doing the exact thing that started all of this to begin with, which is she's now been asked twice. Did Trump lose? And she's not answering the question. And it continues. The question was, and do you accept the election victory by Joe v- Biden? This is crazy. If you guys invited me to come on, no, let me finish, it's just that please. You didn't answer no. that part of the question. You didn't answer my question. Susie, if you want to wanna... finish, okay? Why do no, you answer the question? Finish. Now, I'm talking about clean elections. And I know that shenanigans do take place in elections. As a governor, I witnessed that also. And we were always having to crack down through division of elections and the lieutenant governor's office. Can you answer the question, uh, The bureaucrats who are in charge of it. Because, for instance, we had um, Barack Obama's right-hand man. uh, Let's not talk about Obama. He hasn't been in Obama's only office for years. Sarah, you you can't filibuster us. (laughs) Now, listen, let's go back to the question. The question was, do you accept that no, Joe Biden... Okay, let's go... Okay, let's... No, let's go back to the question. Let me ask you a question mob, and you and you answer rule. my question. Look, did Joe uh, let's Biden... Let's go back to the first question. Did Joe then. Biden... Win, did, did Joe Biden... Let me try and answer a question. Of- Absolute hysteria. It's, it's incredible that there are layers of hysteria here that we're unable to even get to because she won't get through the first level of hysteria, like allowing the question to simply uh, uh, be repeated and then giving an answer. Did Joe Biden win? Here's one more attempt. The rioters on the Capitol. Did Joe Biden win the election? Can we please finish what the topic? Why did you just skip on over that? Because it's at the heart of the issue, isn't it? The president who is facing impeachment, if he was solely to blame for these criminals yes, and their acts. I believe he was that, to blame for the criminals, but about? I'm asking you, Sarah Palin, whether you believe yes. Joe Biden won the election. Well, 
evidently he did because he's sworn in as our president, but no one will convince me nor anyone else with common sense um, and a sense of justice uh, no one will convince us that there were not shenanigans going on. What were the shenanigans? Explain to me fraud. what the, uh, and look, the given that nobody has, that. Nobody can argue the numbers. You, given know, you that, can argue against Sarah, the politician, but you given, cannot argue against the facts. Given that nobody has produced any facts to prove there was widespread fraud in the election, do you have it now? Can you show what? us? Can you tell me no, what? No, no, no. Pierce, where's the fraud? Pierce, stop. Now, don't interrupt me while I finish this point, where's the fraud? okay? Ha listen. Okay, How many polling areas had to produce their voter rolls and they showed that there were, say, more votes than there were voters in certain districts? Yeah, where's the fraud, that Sarah? Where's the fraud? Is that not... Where is, is a single court? Where is a single... Right there? Where has a single court okay. in America upheld fraud? Okay. You're asking if, if there was fraud. I'm, I'm telling you where the shenanigans were. What about all the dead people who voted? Oh, where where was that upheld in court? I don't no, know. I, I, Sarah, we like I you on this know. program. Sarah. I like how Piers says he likes her on the program. I find her completely insufferable and corrosive to American politics. He likes her. OK, more votes than people wasn't demonstrated anywhere. Just because they repeat it doesn't make it true. And then dead people voting. Come on. It's been so widely debunked every time it's been investigated. Dead people voting were actually uh, a combination of people who were registered but died before the election and didn't vote. Being registered to vote and then dying and not voting isn't a crime. It's not shenanigans. It's not foul play. Uh, clerical errors, some junior senior confusion where like a junior voted and the vote was counted as their dad who might have been uh, uh, dead at the time of the election, but it was still only one vote. It just counted for the wrong person. That's another thing that happened. Um, and then also when uh, uh, I believe it was Channel 4 in the UK did an investigation about this, uh, a lot of the people that were just claimed to be dead were actually just alive. And that's happened to me. Remember, I was featured in a documentary about people who were supposedly dead. And I had to put out a statement saying I am I am very much alive right now. So that is um, uh, th these are all uh, untruths. And this went on and on. There are probably about another five or six minutes of it. I won't play more, but absolutely horrifying that Sarah Palin was very close to being the vice president of the United States. And had she been vice president, she would have been, as the phrase goes, a heartbeat away from being president of the United States. Really scary stuff. I'd rather her saying crazy things in Alaska than in the White House for sure. But that doesn't make what she's saying any less outrageous. We'll have more of this, including commentary, your commentary on The David Pakman Show Instagram. Make sure you're following us there at David Pakman Show. We'll take a quick break and be right back. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. Most healthy granola bars have sort of a bad reputation. They don't taste good. They don't fill you up. They don't really satisfy your craving. But our sponsor Monk Pack has changed granola bars. Monk Pack keto granola bars are sweet and delicious, soft and chewy with only 140 calories, one gram of sugar, two net carbs, 
which makes them work beautifully for the keto or low carb lifestyles. They come in flavors like coconut cocoa chip, honey nut, blueberry almond vanilla, my new favorite. I love these because I can grab one anytime. It's quick. It's a great snack. Forget the dry, bland granola bars. Try monk pack keto granola bars. If you don't love them like I do, they'll give you all of your money back. You'll get 20% off when you go to monkpack.com and use coupon code Pacman. That's M U N K P A C K.com. Coupon code Pacman. You can find the link in the podcast notes. If you are anything like me, you probably aren't thrilled with the idea of going into a doctor's office right now. And thankfully, there is a practical and affordable way to take control of your health and get personalized care from the comfort of your home. It's a service called Steady MD. They're one of our sponsors. You take a quiz, you get matched with a licensed primary care physician who understands your health needs. You have a one hour video call with your new doctor. You establish a meaningful relationship with them. And after that, your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone or video chat. This is not a random doctor on call. Each doctor at Steady MD has a limited number of patients, so they actually have time to listen to you. You get the personal attention that you deserve. They can do almost everything an in-person doctor can do, perform medical evaluations, talk to you about health concerns, send prescriptions to your home or local pharmacy, and anything they can't do online, they'll quickly set you up with an in-person provider to do things like blood tests, as an example. You don't need insurance. It's only 99 bucks a month with no other fees or copays. There are so many practical advantages to using Steady MD for primary care, and it's also so much more affordable. Go to steadymd.com/pacman to take the free quiz and see which doctor is right for you. I took their quiz. They matched me with a doctor who specializes in my particular health needs. The doctor they gave me is a really perfect fit for me. Again, that's steadymd.com slash Pacman. There's no risk, no commitment to get started. That's S T E A D Y M D.com forward slash P A K M A N. Welcome back to the David Pacman Show. Today, we're going to be speaking to John Mark Hansen, who's a professor in political science at the University of Chicago. We are going to talk a little bit about uh, what would it look like to rig and or steal an American presidential election. Uh, Mark, it's great to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, okay. I mean, at this point, I don't think we have to rehash all of the claims that were made between November 4th and January 6th or January 20th or even up until today and continue to be made. Let's just get into the reality so so maybe the audience can understand what would go into this. Could could an American presidential election, which is really 50 state elections, could it be rigged? Could it be stolen? How would it have to be done if so? Well, I would say that it's difficult to the point of impossible. Um, I think many people just don't understand the scale of the effort that would be involved to actually fix a presidential election. You're not talking about a few hundred votes. You're not talking about a few thousand votes. You're talking about tens or even hundreds of thousands of votes uh, spread along a number of states. So there are folks who will say, well, 
you know, 80 million votes versus 75 million or whatever. You you don't really need to flip millions of votes. You really need, for example, in 2016, it was 77,000 votes in three states. In 2020, it was, depending on how you slice it, about 100,000 votes. That's very different than millions. So that presumably would make it simpler. Uh, simpler, but not by any means simple. Um, if you imagine what it would take to shift uh, a number of votes and, and bear in mind that you don't know exactly where the problem is going to be. You don't know exactly what the margin you need is and you don't know exactly where it's going to be. Uh, so you have to start months in advance uh, and you have to be thinking in terms of tens of thousands of votes. Uh, and you have to be thinking about how it is that you would recruit tens of thousands of people to participate in this effort. Uh, without uh, anybody blowing a whistle on you. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate. Maybe you don't need to recruit tens of thousands. If you can just get a few tech people who, quote, control the voting machines, that might be a simple way, and you might only need five or six people. Well, that is the case. However, um, you still have to maintain a conspiracy of those five or six people. Um, and one of the things we know is it's very difficult to maintain conspiracies. So there are many, many business frauds that go awry uh, or criminal frauds or, or criminal activities that go awry because people feel the need to say something, um, either because they want to boast about it uh, or because they have a guilty conscience or whatever. So you, you would have to you would have to uh, have a great deal of trust in your confederates. Um, but even beyond that, uh, there are lots and lots and lots of barriers that have been erected to actually manipulating the vote in that way. Uh, there are security measures for the technology that's used in voting and vote counting. Uh, and moreover, there's the knowledge of the um, uh, there's the knowledge of the people who are overseeing the voting process. Um, and so if some county comes in all of a sudden with 10,000 more votes than they've ever cast before, someone might say, boy, that looks kind of fishy. Maybe we ought to look closer at that. Uh, there are so many different claims that have been made about mechanisms for subterfuge, some of which conflict with each other. And maybe I don't know how much we need to necessarily get into that. But just to talk about a few of the different things, there's, as I mentioned, the idea of simply using uh, hacking skills to change the vote tallies of a group of voting machines. We heard stories of so-called massive dumps of ballots coming in in the middle of the night on vans and, and literally just taking boxes of ballots out, which presumably in that case, the voting machines aren't being manipulated, but someone's feeding in a bunch of ballots. There's the idea of having election workers look at ballots and then disqualify only some, presumably to help one candidate and hurt the other. All of these are based on different principles. And what to me seems very difficult would be that you might end up with one of these strategies working against a different one, conflicting. The coordination of such strategies seems extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, it's it's enormously difficult. Um, uh, take Take, for instance, the idea of a bunch of ballots that get dumped. So most states, uh, most jurisdictions, in fact, allow partisan observers to ballot counting. Um, and so all of a sudden these ballots come in and someone might say, so where did they come from? Um, how do we know that they're authentic? Um, there should be a mark on the ballot. Um, there should be some kind of record that the person at the polling place actually authorized this person to vote. 
Uh, or if it's an absentee ballot, it should meet the requirements for absentee ballots, which oftentimes include a signature. Um, they include a ballot application, all kinds of things. So there are all kinds of safeguards uh, to prevent ballots from being submitted fraudulently, and certainly all kinds of safeguards to make sure that uh, if there are frauds, that there's a likelihood of their being discovered, particularly on a large scale. Yeah, when it comes to in-person voter fraud, uh, the idea of someone, I, I don't even know, sometimes it's not even clear to me exactly how you would do it. You would go to multiple polling places or show up and claim to be a variety of different people. I mean, you wouldn't be registered in multiple places. So going to polling places as you wouldn't wouldn't work. I guess you could show up and say at one polling place, you say you're Joe Smith and at the next place you say you, you say you're Steve Johnson and that type of thing. But it seems like in order to flip 50,000 votes with that strategy, you need thousands of people making it incredibly unlikely to be able to do it secretly. Exactly. Exactly. Just think about recruiting such a number of people. So somehow you're going to have to find a bunch of people who are willing to take the risk uh, either to their freedom or to their uh, pocketbook or to their reputations uh, to participate in all of this. And you're going to have to make sure that you don't reach anybody who has a healthy enough conscience that they would blow the whistle on you. When it comes to um, people getting caught attempting to do these things, from looking at the Brennan Center for Justice's work on this, which has looked at over a billion votes over I don't I don't know how many years, many, many years, um, they say that this in-person voter fraud is not only extremely rare, but there is not even a single case in which it has come close to actually affecting the outcome of of a race. Right. Uh, there are people who will claim, maybe cynically, maybe not, that just because this uh, Brennan Center gives us these numbers, it doesn't address the number of people that are getting away with it, which simply don't show up when you hear about, oh, 20 people were caught trying to do this. How can we defeat the idea that maybe there are lots of people not caught doing it? Well, again, I think the you have to kind of do the math on it. Um, so any kind of large scale effort means that the difficulties go up, the costs go up. Uh, and the risk of exposure goes up. Uh, the more people who are involved in this, the more votes that are involved in this, the greater the likelihood that it's going to be found. So, yeah, maybe there are people who get away with it, but there are people who get away with it maybe affecting one or two votes. Um, you know, out of all the scrutiny that this last election got, um, so far the only indictment that we've seen for any kind of voting irregularities was a man in Pennsylvania who voted an absentee ballot for his mother, right. for Donald Trump. So... You know, that's the that's the typical kind of thing that we see in these cases. Um, most cases of vote fraud or alleged vote fraud are not even prosecuted because it's people making honest mistakes. Right? They thought that they were registered, but they weren't. Um, or they thought that they were eligible in this jurisdiction, but they weren't or so forth. So uh, most of these cases uh, have quite innocent explanations. What would be of all of these different mechanisms? What's the one you're most likely to get away with? Oh, boy. Um, I'm not sure that there are that many possibilities anymore. You know, back in the bad old days, there used to be a fair bit of vote fraud. It was committed both by Republicans and by Democrats. Um, and as a result of that, um, you know, election officials learn through time uh, what those uh, what those frauds look like, um, and they learned about how to take security measures to make sure that those frauds didn't occur. 
Um, and so by now, with a century of experience with the Australian ballot, with the secret ballot, uh, we have lots and lots of, of experience in this. Um, and it's not like people have just been twiddling their thumbs and saying, oh, me, oh, my, when they encounter problems. They've taken steps to avoid them in the future. When it comes to the U.S. having these 50 election systems plus D.C., I guess you'd say, you know, it's 51 election systems. One could make the argument that um, the election is less secure because you have so many different systems. But on the other hand, you could make the argument that having all of these systems actually makes it more secure because in order to really do some kind of fraud at a, at a big level, you, you'd have to figure out a way to manipulate multiple different systems. Do you think that having the 51 different systems on balance makes the election more or less secure? Uh, that's a good question. I think you could argue it both ways. Um, certainly one could argue that if you have separate systems, uh, you might not have all jurisdictions adopting best practices. Mm. Uh, and that would be an argument for a more uniform system. Um, on the other hand, uh, if it is a matter of some kind of technical expertise uh, to manipulate these systems, then having a wide variety of systems means that you have to have a greater variety of technical expertise in order to do anything significant. Do you think that because of all of the the smears that we've heard over the last two, three months about the election of 2020, there's going to be a skepticism about the system in some parts uh, among some communities that will last a long time? Or is it as simple as if in 2022 politicians don't make these claims, people will generally speaking trust the systems again? Well, I think that there is now a partisan reason not to, quote unquote, trust the system. Mm. Whether that actually translates into people behaving in a different way, I think, is another question entirely. Uh, there are all these um, uh, concerns in Georgia, for instance, in the Senate runoff that, uh, that Donald Trump's uh, uh, casting aspersions on the fairness of the Georgia election would mean that Republicans would stay home. Um, why? <laughs> right. Why, then why they would, definitely lose. <laughs> Right, right. Why, why would you do that? So, so um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it will matter uh, a whole lot. What it, what it does do, however, is to raise the possibility of just casting doubt on the legitimacy of every election outcome. And that's right. a bad thing. Yeah. And that uh, it seemed I mean, I, I there was a woman who confronted Mitt Romney in an airport a couple of weeks ago. And almost like as a reflexive thing, she said, you weren't, your election wasn't even legitimate. And like, who, who, I didn't even know the Utah 2018 election was being challenged in terms of its legitimacy. It seems it's becoming a catch-all for, I don't like that you won. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and this has been brewing for a while. It's been a Republican strategy since 2010, uh, basically to elect more, to erect more and more and more barriers um, to the um, to, to voting and and particularly to the constituencies that tend to vote Democratic, um, just in order to keep one's opponents away from the polls. Right. Um, so, you know, this is actually and, and in that respect, the 2020 election was something of an embarrassment uh, because we had uh, easier access to voting than we've ever had before in our history. Um, and we have a whistle clean election. So now what are they going to claim? <laughs> right. Uh, how how can they how can they say well actually things do work 
Um, and so we get a doubling down on these fraud claims. Yeah. And uh, in fact, Christopher Krebs, uh, who worked for Donald Trump, said exactly that it was fine and he was fired. And so we yeah. see uh, the, the political nature that that it's taking on. Uh, we've been speaking with Professor John Mark Hansen, who teaches political science at the University of Chicago. So great having you on today. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19, and they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell, and that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you. And I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. The David Pakman Show at davidpackman.com. We're learning more and more about the absolute fury that overtook Donald Trump after seeing one of his two impeachment attorneys yesterday, Bruce Castor, aimlessly uh, uh, wander through his personal background, the political preferences of his parents. Uh, praise of senators, a discussion of uh, pre-revolutionary war British law, really everything but the subject matter of the impeachment during his opening statements yesterday, which lasted about 50 minutes, or rather not opening statements, the, the opening to the day one proceedings to determine whether the Senate has the jurisdiction to try a president that is no longer in office. As we talked about yesterday, the Senate voted 56 to 44 that, yes, they can have the impeachment trial. There's a report from uh, CNN that Donald Trump was, quote, deeply unhappy with the performance of Bruce Castor. Multiple sources familiar with Trump's reaction said to CNN that Trump was borderline screaming as uh, Bruce Castor uh, was failing uh, humiliatingly, embarrassingly on uh, global television yesterday. Um, and uh, particularly was upset that those opening remarks from Bruce Castor were rambling. Trump's team also was reportedly confused uh, about the last minute deci decision to swap the order of his defense. Castor, who did the 50 minutes of rambling first, was actually scheduled to speak after David Schoen and people around Trump thought that 
this new idea of having Bruce Castor go first wasn't a particularly strong idea. Now, of course, they were right. How much of it is hindsight bias? I don't know. Uh, but they uh, say that Donald Trump was particularly upset when the first thing Bruce Castor said when he got up there was the House managers, <laughs> the prosecution did a really great job. And of course, it was true. Uh, it was true that they did a good job, but it's not typically what you want your defense counsel to be uh, admitting. The New York Times also had a report in which they said that Castor getting up there and praising the impeachment managers was not well received by Donald Trump. And they reported that uh, some of Trump's uh, legal team were actually surprised that there would be raw video shown from the January 6th riots. This to me, you, you know, we said when your own legal team misspells United States as United States, that should be a signal that maybe they're not playing with a full deck when it comes to preparation. And Democrats had been saying for days, we are going to show video of the riots. Uh, Trump's defenders were saying, well, Trump's lawyers are going to show videos at some point of Democrats calling for violence. Okay, well, so everybody knows what to expect. But reportedly, Trump's legal team was surprised that there was video of the riots shown. Uh, I sort of half jokingly, five percent jokingly said during the uh, proceedings yesterday, does Bruce Castor get fired today by Donald Trump? Apparently, it's actually something Trump is considering. The Daily Beast was told by a source familiar with what was going on that Donald Trump is considering pulling Bruce Castor from the legal team altogether, which would put everything on uh, in particular on David Schoen, which would be a, uh, a a lot of work, to say the least. As far as the schedule goes, the impeachment trial is expected to go uh, through the week and into next week. There are going to be um, eight hours of presentations from the House managers, eight hours of presentations from Trump's defense counsel. There will then be it's either four hours total or four hours per party of questions for the uh, impeachment managers and defense counsel. And then there will also be closing statements. So I'm expecting at least into Monday or Tuesday, although these things change so quickly that that, that the plan, the plan may change relatively soon. Trump furious with Bruce Castor, uh, understandable why. Why can't Trump just get people who are adequately prepared to represent him in a way that's not embarrassing? Maybe it's because a lot of lawyers know they're probably not going to get paid by Trump since he stiffs people on legal bills. I don't really know the answer, but it just will not stop. Um, we had another yesterday in the uh, in the rush to get this first day of Trump's second impeachment trial um, out live on all of our platforms. I did not cover the White House press briefing with press secretary Jen Psaki. And yes, I will address my pronunciation of Psaki um, in the voicemail segment today. Um, and reporters just will not stop asking really dumb questions. Here is a reporter asking Jen Psaki, does Joe Biden plan on hanging up a painting of Donald Trump in the White House? Of course, Donald Trump not hanging a painting of Obama, as is often done of the prior president in the midst of everything that's going on in week three of Joe Biden's administration. Jen Psaki asked, what about Joe Biden's view on a Trump painting in the White House? Um, president Trump, former President Trump, he broke tradition by not having his predecessor have a portrait hanged up here. 
Mm -hmm. um, that, as far as I understand, that was something that was considered totally the normal thing to do. Will President Biden be inviting his predecessor to hang up a portrait somewhere? And will he get the Obamas back in to finally get their, you know, their ceremony? I have no portrait revealings or portrait plans or portrait events to preview for you, um, but I have not been given any indication that we would break with tradition in that regard. So not a major issue, as you can imagine. I really don't know what's up with some of these questions. It's not completely clear to me because they're not necessarily coming from all from reporters with with bad reputations or from whom we would expect this. I mean, Peter Ducey, yes, we know what he's trying to do and get sound bites for right wing media. But some of these are not reporters that have particularly bad reputations or, or are known to have uh, bad, bad intentions. But we these these questions simply will not stop. Now, here's a bonus clip. I mentioned Peter Ducey. Uh, Peter Ducey asking a question. This is just unbelievable. Irony is dead. Peter Ducey asked about conflicts of interest for Joe Biden. You really can't make this up. Uh, Joe Biden's um, son in law was advising Biden on vaccine response at some earlier point. Here is Peter Ducey continuing to try to make a name for himself with supposedly tough questions of Jen Psaki. And uh, he brings this up. Take a listen. Quick one on conflicts of interest and some reporting that's been done uh, by our colleagues at other networks. The president's son-in-law, Dr. Howard Krein, was advising candidate Biden on COVID-19 response while he was investing in companies involved with the COVID-19 response through his company, Startup Health. Dr. Crying has been at the White House since the inauguration. Is he still advising the president on COVID-19 response? Well, Dr. Crying is his son-in-law. Um, the president. Why there are questions about a potential. Well, and I think he was here because the president was inaugurated recently, which is understandable. Uh, the president has made clear that there will be an absolute wall between him and any businesses connected with his family members. Uh, and as he reiterated just last week, no family member is going to have an office in the White House or be involved in any government policymaking that applies to his son-in-law and applies to every single member of his family. This guy was there for the inauguration. He's not working for the White House. How can they pretend to care about conflicts of interest now? We just learned Jared and Ivanka in positions not confirmed by the Senate nor elected by the people were working in the White House and made between 200 and 600 million dollars while working at the White House for those four years. Now, sadly, we expected this, and unfortunately, it does work on a lot of people. Millions of Trump supporters who never cared about conflicts of interest for the last four years will fixate on this stuff. And in that sense, it's not stupid for Fox News to do it for their audience. They look like complete fools to most of the world and the country. But for much of their audience, this is how they generate narratives and create agendas. But what about what about this? What about this vaccine advice? Where were you when Devonka was making millions from handbags and working for Trump and Kellyanne Conway was promoting the handbags on Fox News? Where, where were you then? Well, they were nowhere because they didn't care. And it's not about principle. It's merely about what can we say to try to attack Joe Biden? And unfortunately, for the low information Fox News audience, the OAN types, the Newsmax types, this may well be compelling. And it's how you generate narrative.
Hey, so I, I've been, I guess, struggling with how to pronounce the name of Joe Biden's White House press secretary. And I got yet another voicemail admonishing me about it. Remember, our voicemail number is 219-2-DAVID-P. Take a listen. Hello, David. This is a fan. My name is Sue. And I mean this in the most kindly way. Since you will be pronouncing the White House press secretary's name hundreds of times, I would suggest that you pronounce it correctly. Yes. It's Jen Psaki with a, 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 a short, no, yes, a soft A instead of, instead of Saki. Jen Psaki. Bye-bye. So I, at the beginning, I would say Jen Saki, and then a few people wrote to me and said, David, it's Saki. So I switched to Saki, and then over the weekend, I got a dozen emails saying, David, it's Saki. And now I'm being told it's Saki. I am going to pronounce it Saki, and the reason why is that Jen Saki recently did an interview with a longtime friend of hers, and he pronounced it Saki. I assume he knows how it's said, so I'm going to be pronouncing it Jen Saki. Until someone explains to me a good reason why I should reverse course once again. We've got a great bonus show for you today. We've got resignations. We've got Black History Month drama in Utah schools. We've got uh, more statements about the lab hypothesis of the coronavirus. All of those stories and more on today's bonus show. Get instant access by signing up at joinpacman.com. <laughs> 